us. Is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 32 of the Lundloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, trading, and artisanal baking. No, I'm sorry, that's life. Markets, trading, and life. In a minute, we're going to talk about 24-7 equity trading. Are we about to see that? And do we want to see that? But first, I want to talk about a condition that I have something that I've been suffering from for almost, man, almost four decades now. A lot of you out there probably know what ED is. ED is erectile dysfunction. I have, I suffer from something called CD, Christmas dysfunction. Now, Christmas dysfunction is not a negative thing per se. It's not like the fear of Christmas. There are actually people out there that have a phobia about Christmas. I even looked it up. The name is almost unpronounceable. It's like, have you ever seen one of those Thai last names where there's 12 consonants in a row? If you had that and you sprinkled in a little bit of Greek in the center, that would be the name of this phobia. I can't pronounce it, but the internet can. So here we go. Fear of Christmas is called, wait for it. Christogeniaticophobia. Let's do that one more time. Okay, so that phobia, let's just call it that phobia. It's actually, it comes from the Greek word herote, which means holiday. And herotophobia is the fear of celebrating events. So this is a subsection of that. And as I was looking this up, I realized that there are actually a number of other phobias related to Christmas. In fact, there's some that are general, you know, kind of this time of year, like chinophobia, which is the fear of snow. And there's cryophobia, which is the fear of the cold. Um, There's some that are a little bit more of a stretch, like Santa lives at the North Pole, and the North Pole is where they have the Northern Lights. And there's something called auroraphobia, which is the fear of the Northern Lights. But then there's some that are really more specific to Christmas. Like there's one called dendrophobia, and that is the fear of trees. People that suffer from that, for them, this must be the most terrifying time of the year, to have the object of your fear right in your house. There's something called decidophobia. It's the fear of making decisions. Again, this time of year, that's a tough one. You have to decide, what gift do I get to that picky relative I have? Or should I have that 12th gingerbread cookie at the Christmas party? There's something called deronophobia. And that's the fear, not just of receiving, but receiving and opening presents. And then with all the holiday gatherings and family at this time of year, there's something that a lot of people out there have. It's called pantheraphobia. And that is fear of your mother-in-law. Now, I definitely have pantheraphobia. And I can say that because my mother-in-law does not listen to the Lundloop podcast. So those are fears around Christmas, but I have a dysfunction around Christmas. And the dysfunction is I can't seem to get into the Christmas spirit. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait for the 1st of December. I couldn't wait to get the Christmas lights out, 
to put the decorations up, to start playing Christmas carols. And maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe the the thing is, is that, you know, they say that when you do heroin, that first rush that you get is so amazing and you can never quite replicate it no matter how many times you do heroin afterwards. And people chase that first rush. It's called chasing the dragon. So maybe my problem is that those special feelings I had about Christmas, that Christmas spirit I had as a kid was just so unique that no matter what I do in my life, I won't ever be able to measure up to that again. And yes, I just did compare doing heroin to getting in the Christmas spirit. But opiates aside, it's bothered me because I like Christmas and it felt like each year I would say, okay, this year I'm going to get into the Christmas spirit. And the year would keep going and keep going and I could never really feel it completely. Next thing I know, it's midnight on Christmas Eve, the holiday season's over, and I almost have a like a depressive episode the next day, knowing that I have to wait a whole nother year to try this thing again. So I've tried different things. Uh, I used to start Christmas celebrating really early. That didn't work. I tried all these different things, and I finally stumbled across three things that have helped me in the last four or five years really get into Christmas. In fact, this year was the first year that I feel like I fully got into the spirit, and that's due to actually one of these things that that was just a game changer. But the first thing is I found my timing and my sizing on Christmas. Like I said, my parents used to say no Christmas celebrations before the 1st of December. And for a long time, I went with that because I thought, well, that makes that time special. And then when I get into that time, it'll be really intense and I'll really feel the Christmas spirit. That didn't work. So I went the other way and I started doing Christmas decorations and Christmas lights earlier and earlier each year, sometimes starting right after Halloween. That didn't work either. This year, I think I found my timing. And my timing is about two weeks before Thanksgiving, I start to get stuff out. This year, I put my lights up. Didn't turn them on, but I put them up, made sure all the bulbs were working, made sure all the connections were right. And so as soon as Thanksgiving was over, all I had to do that weekend was just flip the switch. Lights are up. I've already got some stuff out. So that gave me the perfect timing, not too early, not too late. The second thing that I did with that is the sizing. We have a lot of Christmas stuff. And I used to think to myself, I know I need more stuff. That's what it is. If I have more stuff, more Christmas decorations, more holiday decorations, that will help me get into the Christmas spirit. And what it actually did is the opposite. Because by the time I got done putting all the Christmas decorations out, it was usually about a week before Christmas and I didn't have time to enjoy it. So this year I said, you know what? I'm just going to put out a reasonable amount. I don't have to put out everything. I can put out some stuff this year, some stuff next year. So between the timing of when I started getting in the spirit and the sizing of how much stuff I put out, that's really helped. The second thing is I realized that I was trying to superimpose traditions that I had as a kid around Christmas onto my current family. And they're cool and they're game and went with it, but... They weren't really our traditions as a family, so they didn't ring true. And because of that, everyone didn't get into them, and that was just another blocker for me to get into the holiday spirit. So about four or five years ago, I said, oh, you know what? We need to start having our own Christmas traditions as a family, the four of us. 
So we've instituted a lot of those things, one of which I think I might have mentioned last week is that in the second or third week or first or second week of December, we get a hotel room up in Pasadena. Now, Pasadena is about an hour north from where I am, and it's near the base of the mountain, so it does a couple of things. First of all, it's nice and cool up there and crisp. You can see the snow on the mountains, and it helps get into that Christmas mood. It's really hard in Southern California when it's usually 75 degrees in December to, to feel Christmassy, but that helps. And then there's a number of different events that are up in that area. The Arboretum does a Christmas light show. Uh, we go to this place called St. Albans. It's a street in San Marino that has these massive pine trees. And every year the fire department comes out with their long um, like cranes and ladders and puts lights all. It's really amazing. So there's certain little touchstones as we're going through the end of November, the beginning of December that you're like, okay, you feel like you're actually in the Christmas season and the Christmas spirit. But the the big thing, the game changer, the one that has fully put me into the Christmas mode this year and, and somewhat last year and the year before has to do with setting the table. All right. So four years ago, my wife decided she wanted to do a Christmas event at our house for some of her employees. It's fine. We did it about a week before Christmas and the day of the event, like I usually do the day of Thanksgiving or the day of Christmas, I started pulling out the tables, getting out the tablecloths, making the centerpieces, getting all the napkins and the place settings and getting it all together. We had everyone over. It was a great time. Everyone left. We took all the plates down and washed them. And then I realized, well, our Christmas table is already set. We're having Christmas Eve in a week. And really, the table's ready. All we have to do is wash the dishes and put them back up there. And there was this weird sense of relief that came over me. Because Christmas Day or Christmas Eve for us, to me, it's like your wedding day. There's so much preparation that goes up before it. And then when the day starts, it's just like you're doing so many things that the day itself goes fast and you don't really enjoy it. And so the week between when we had her event and when we had our Christmas Eve event, every time I walked by that table, I was just like, oh, something about it just was like, oh, I really feel like I'm in the Christmas spirit. And then I could say to myself, and it's still a week from Christmas. And then it hit me. I realized something that I guess I hadn't put together in all these 40 years. The essence for me of Christmas, if you had to boil down the Christmas spirit to one event. For me, it is Christmas Eve. When I was a kid, that's when my grandparents would come over, my aunts and uncles would come over, family friends would come over, and there were stages to the night. And I loved every stage. The first stage was watching my mom get out all the linens and all the decorations and making the table. And having her and my dad cooking stuff during the day. The next stage was getting dressed up because that was the maybe one night a year that I put on some nice slacks and a little sweater and probably a sailor suit at some point when I was younger. And then there's just these other stages. There's the knocks at the door and the doorbell ringing as different people are showing up. People you haven't seen for maybe six months or a year. 
And then there's people sitting around and having appetizers and a couple of drinks and catching up. And then not to be misogynist, but this is how it worked. Then there's the phase where like all the ladies went in and kind of finished up the stuff that was going on in the kitchen. And the guys were over here having drinks. Then, of course, there's the dinner. Everyone's sitting down at a formal table and it's, you know, it's decorated and everyone's feeling jolly. Then there's the dessert and the coffee and the tea afterwards. And then, of course, there's the opening of the present. So there's all these great different phases and stages to the night. And I look forward to them so much every year. And that, to me, was Christmas. That was the Christmas spirit. So when I would see the table, it would give me that hit, you know, of um, Christmas spirit. You know, it was like it was like the heroin. It was like injecting that Christmas spirit into my veins. But Christmas wasn't over. And I didn't have to run around and do stuff. I could literally savor it. So three years ago, the year after my wife's event, I did the same thing, but did it for Thanksgiving. I realized, oh, wait a minute. We don't have to actually set the table the day of the event. We can set it a couple days before. We can set it a week before. So I set the Thanksgiving table a few days before. Did the same thing with Christmas. Was able to enjoy both of them. This year, I took it to another level. So I set the Thanksgiving table up a week before Thanksgiving. We had everybody over. It was great. Cleared the table, cleared the um, centerpieces, the fall centerpieces. And then two days later, we decorated the table for Christmas. So I've got a whole month to look at that table every time I walk by it and get that, you know, that rush, right, of, Christmas spirit. And it really has made a difference. I feel like I'm in the Christmas spirit. I'm relaxed. I'm not, you know, worried that I have to jam it all into that that one night Christmas Eve when everyone comes over. And it's been a hundred percent game changer. So for the first time in 40 years, I can fully say that uh, I'm in the Christmas spirit this year. Uh, is this the loop? I am a notoriously sound sleeper. Despite all the ADHD and all the generalized anxiety, there's a part of my brain that is extremely rational. And it always has been. And basically, the way it works is, once my head hits the pillow, I think my brain knows there's nothing I can do about my troubles or my cares between that point and when I wake up. So why expend any energy worrying during the night? So there's very few times in the last 55 years that I found myself up in the middle of the night, tossing and turning, not being able to go back to sleep. One of those times, though, occurred uh, five, ten years ago, when in an act of stupid bravado, I decided to hold a overly sized apple position into the clothes, knowing full well that there was a economic event that was coming the next morning. Obviously, my mind was not cool with that because it woke me up in the middle of the night, like 12.30, 1 o'clock, and I was freaking out. Why did I hold that position in the clothes? I have way too much risk. And out of instinct, I just picked up my phone. I use interactive brokers, and I checked to see what was going on in the futures. And to my surprise, I realized that I could actually trade my Apple position. It was like one. 05, 110 in the morning. And at first I thought, wait, this can't be right. I'm delusional. It's the middle of the night. I'm dreaming still. 
but I put in an order to close my position, and what do you know? It closed out. That was the first time I realized the extent of the overnight pre-market session. Um, I don't know why I didn't know that before. I guess it's just because I had never really been an overnight trader. I knew that the market for pre-market trading opened up at 8 a.m. Eastern time. And I knew that the market for after hours went as long as 8 p.m. sometimes. But what I didn't realize is that several direct access brokers, IB being one of them, allow pre-market trading to commence as early as 4 a.m. And fortunately for me, Apple being one of the biggest market cap stocks and one of the most liquid and in demand, that was one of the stocks I could trade at that point. And so I closed out my position. But I've always had a fascination with the market hours, why they are what they are, why they were what they are. They just seem so arbitrary. And if you look back at the history of the NYSE, you see that that consistent through line of arbitrariness. Is that a word? Uh, so the, the NYSE was formed in 19, sorry, in 1792. But when the market first opened, they didn't have continuous trading. What they had was call trading, and it was broken up into two different sessions, the morning session and the afternoon session. What would happen is the officials of the exchange would come out, and they would call out the name of each stock, and then brokers traded in turn. They took their turn to see whether they wanted to trade this stock or that stock, and then they would go to the next stock. It wasn't until 1871 that they instituted what they call continuous trading. And when that first came in, the trading hours were changed frequently. The market generally opened around 10 a.m., and it closed sometime between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. So again, still pretty arbitrary. But what was really interesting is the market was open six days a week. There was actually trading from Monday to Saturday. Now, in 1887, trading hours officially changed to Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., and Saturday was shortened to 10 a.m. to noon. But what fascinates me is it wasn't until 1952 that they actually got rid of the Saturday trading session. That really surprised me. And then the trading hours were changed from Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That went on until 1968. Now, in 1968, something interesting happened. There was a big boom in trading volume, and they couldn't catch up on all the paperwork. So what the NYSE did was they closed trading on Wednesdays for six months in order to catch up on all the backroom paperwork. Then in 1969, they added Wednesday trading back, but they shortened the day to 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So there was a shortened day on Wednesday. That went on until later in 1969 when they extended all trading hours 30 minutes. So at that point, 1969, Monday through Friday trading went from 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Then in 1970, they added another 30 minutes and extended the day from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That went on until 1974 when they changed the closing time to 4 p.m. So it was 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. But this is a part that really surprised me. It wasn't until 1985, two years before I placed my first trade, that they actually changed the start time of the market to 9.30. That's just bizarre to me. So that's what the current hours are, 9.30 to 4 p.m. Now, if you go around the world, there are actually exchanges that are open outside of those hours. In fact, the Tehran Stock Exchange in Iran they actually are open Saturday through Wednesday. 
And then most of the Middle Eastern exchanges, they're open on Sunday until Wednesday. And I think that probably has to do with some, you know, uh, something around religious schedules. That's my guess. Now, as I looked into this a little bit more, I found out to my surprise that TD Ameritrade actually has something which they call 24-5 trading. And 24-5 trading basically allows you to trade 24 hours a day, five days a week in a a limited list of securities. And they're all basically ETFs. They're like uh, EEM, DIA, UNG, QQQ. There's about 20 of them. And they are traded on what's called the extended hours overnight. I don't know if it's an exchange, but whatever, ECN, I guess, is what it would be. I looked at it last night. Interesting. But again, you have all the limitations of overnight trading. You can only put in limit orders. The bid NAS are pretty wide. Uh, the liquidity doesn't seem to be there. It it It's marketed like it's a retail platform, but it feels like it's more for institutions. People are saying all the time, are we going to go 24-7? Are we going to be trading just like we trade crypto? Um, which, you know, futures trade around the clock, but they don't trade on the weekends. Crypto trades on the weekend. So the thought process is, well, if crypto trades on the weekend, why don't we just have futures go 24-7? Why don't we have equities go 24-7? And in doing some research for this piece, I came across something that I, again, was shocked about. There is actually an exchange called the 24 Exchange. It's a Bermuda-based crypto and foreign exchange trading platform. And they want to bring equity trading up to that standard, to the 24-7 standard. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But then I found out that the company actually secured a $14 million funding round by Steve Cohen, right? (laughs) It's hard to bet against Steve Cohen, right? So the question is, will we eventually get 24-7 equities trading? And I guess the secondary question is, do we really want 24-7 equities trading? I don't know. It's tough. It's it's a tough call. It's been 35 years since the New York Stock Exchange last changed its trading schedule. That's a long time. And so much of the trading is computer program based that I have to imagine there's thousands and thousands of programs out there that are that have been built with the assumption that the NYSE opens at 9:30 and it closes at 4 p.m. And I wonder how much of that programming is hard-coded. And we always think of programming as being very fungible. You just change the programming, but that's not how programming is always done, and that's not how it was necessarily done back in the day. So I wonder, those institutions, would they be able to you know, pivot and, and rewrite all their code so that you could uh, respond to a, a 24-7 market? But I, here's, the big, here's the big question mark. Just because you can do something technologically, that doesn't always mean you should. And I think the big issue with going to 24-7 trading or 24-7 markets is the customer service aspect. There are literally trillions and trillions of dollars that are connected all throughout the world to the goings-on and the NASDAQ and the NYSE and all the major exchanges. The crypto market, even though I don't know the 
at one point, I think it was 1.3 trillion was the market cap of crypto. I think it's obviously much lower now. Even at 1.3 trillion, it was somewhat of a balkanized uh, asset. It wasn't interconnected into the DNA of the world financial markets like the stocks that that trade on the major exchanges are. And so the question is, if you go 24-7, you have to have a commiserate um, or commensurate, whichever one of those words is correct in this situation, customer service team supporting all this. For example, if, if a Russian tanker blows up or let's say let's say Russia invades some country at 3 a.m. on a Saturday retail customers are going to want to get a hold of their broker they're going to want to call and see what's going on you have to have not only full trading desks that are on call at that time but you have to have support staff you have to have overnight brokers you have to have overnight registered investment advisors think of all the money that is being held, all the AUM that's being held with registered investment advisors. And people are going to want to get a hold of someone in these off hours. And it just seems to me like it would be almost cost prohibitive to have, to staff up in all these institutions all across the world in a 24-7 market. So I think probably what's going to happen is there'll be some version of what TD Ameritrade does There'll be some form of 24-7 trading, but it will really only be in ETFs and maybe some of the larger cap stocks. I think it's going to be geared mostly towards institutions that are going to be doing like big block trades between each other. Because I don't think I don't think the clock is what's important. It's the liquidity. I just can't see any way that you're going to have the same amount of liquidity that you have between the 9.30 and the 4 p.m. market extending 24-7. I just, I just don't think that's possible. And because you won't have that, you're just not going to have as many people that are going to be actively trading, not to mention the fact how many people are going to want to do that. Who wants to focus on the market 24-7 unless you are a you know, crypto exchange owner based in Bermuda with uh, tons of Adderall on your desk, right? I mean, trading is a young person's game. Uh, uh, Let's put it this way. Frenetic trading is a young person's game. And I think as you age out, you don't want to be looking at the market 24-7. So I think the technology will eventually get there, but I don't think we're ever going to see market liquidity overnight like we see during the regular session. Of course, that still begs the question, if we have a position open, a trading position, like we're going to swing and we hold it into the closed, you know, how we're going to have to be aware of what happens overnight. So, you know, maybe there will be some, um, you know, I've used some, some platforms in the past. I use this one called Button Trader that had very intuitive stops, very dynamic stops, stops that were uh, time-based or, you know, for example, like if a stock goes up 5%, it triggers a trailing 2% stop. I think maybe there'll be more complexities built into our trading platform so that let's say a stock makes a crazy move overnight on thin volume because something happens and we're asleep. You know, maybe you can attach a stop to it that will trigger on a move over X amount and then trail it, you know, just things like that because we can't just close our eyes to 
the overnight uh, risk. I mean, if there is trading going on, there is risk, even if there's not liquidity. So it'll be interesting to see how this this plays out. I'd really love to get your thoughts on this. Um, you know, you can hit me up, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at the loop.com. And you can also, you know, if you're a subscriber, you can be in the Discord and maybe we could start a thread there. But I think it's an interesting concept, but I think we go back to what I said before is just because you can do something with technology doesn't necessarily make it's sense to do in the real world. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelumloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.